as I was leaving my house this evening to come over here, I live over at Gaston Pond, I met somebody coming in who said, you might want to go the long way around because there's a fire truck blocking the road at Gaston Pond and um, uh, you won't be able to get through. So I went the long way around and there were fire trucks blocking the other end too. (laughs) So uh, I went back and (laughs) checked it out and found a way to get through. And so I apologize for being delayed this evening. It added some alertness to the system. (laughs) What I'd like to talk about this evening is mindfulness. And um, from the perspective of what we're doing here, what we're practicing here, Mindfulness, I think as a, um, in a kind of familiar way or a a way of just describing it, we could describe mindfulness, you know, just very simply as knowing what's happening while it's happening or as being present or aware or connected to experience. Often our... um, language for mindfulness does include the language of seeing as Joseph uh, mentioned this morning and yet it can be helpful to recognize that mindfulness includes a kind of a feeling into or connected a connected nature of experience a meeting of experience the mindfulness of our practice is I think based on or related to a very ordinary quality of mind, this very simple capacity of our minds to know what's happening while it's happening, this capacity of our minds to be self-reflective, to know what's happening in the present moment. We can know that we know as human beings, and yet we're often not really very consciously aware of that fact of this knowing that we know, of this function or capacity or ability of our minds to do this. We take it for granted. It's a kind of, seems so ordinary that we don't really notice it. And uh, I think it was actually one of the aspects of the brilliancy of the Buddha to uh, highlight this quality and actually recognize, hey, you know, this is an important quality. This is a really helpful quality, particularly when it's cultivated and explored in a particular way. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, he framed mindfulness with particular qualities, other qualities that come with it to make it right mindfulness. You know, if we were to ask someone who's never met mindfulness as a practice, somebody who's dealing with a reactive emotion or in a reactive state, if somebody's angry and we ask them, do you know you're angry? They're going to look at us kind of funny. It's like, well, yeah, duh, of course I know I'm angry. 
And so it's not just the knowing of what we are experiencing that makes mindfulness right mindfulness. It needs to, it includes, right mindfulness includes a perspective that in the case, for instance, of a reactive emotion such as anger, has us interested and curious about turning towards the experience of the emotion rather than being interested in what we're angry about. So it's a a recognizing what's happening as an experience in the present moment, a knowing that it is an experience in the present moment, as opposed to believing it, believing something about it, believing something needs to happen about it. So in the case of anger, for instance, recognizing that anger is something that's happening in the mind and that it's related to something that's happening in the world, probably, often, related to something happening out there in our, in our world of experience, but not necessarily dependent on that. that by, by that I mean that that same thing could be happening and we might not be angry about it. And, you know, this is really one of the key, I think, turnings of the mind around suffering, one of the the turnings of the mind around our practice is that we recognize that what's happening in the world can't directly make us react in a certain way. That there's stuff happening in the world and it comes in and it's processed through our minds and bodies and it's a process within our minds and bodies that creates the reactivity. And this is really good news actually because it means that there can be some possibility of changing our experience. If it were entirely a locked-in fact that something happens in the world and we respond with, with reactivity, there would be no hope. But with this, with the recognition that it's not just what's out there, there's something happening out there, and there's something happening inside that's creating the reactivity. And so as we turn towards the experience of anger, we start to learn this. We start to see the contribution that our own minds are uh, making towards our inner experience, towards our reactivities. Now this doesn't mean that we're not discerning about taking action. And so mindfulness, I think we said this yesterday, and mindfulness, this turning towards our experience, doesn't mean that we uh, simply don't do anything. 
Mindfulness, I think, brings along the qualities of discernment as well. This right mindfulness that brings along the discernment, discernment as well that allows us to respond appropriately from compassion with metta when circumstances require it in the world, when circumstances of injustice, for instance, or things happening that need intervention. There are definitely things in the world that need intervention, and yet we don't need to be angry there. In fact, we can turn towards compassion in that response. You know, the Buddha, the Buddha didn't just sit and just sit. <laughs> He was very active in the world. He, at one point, I'm told a story that uh, there was um, the fomentation of a war in the area where he lived, and he actually went and stood on the battlefield and told people, stop, you know, what are you doing? And while he was standing there, the war stopped. And so there is this place for compassionate action. And yet it, it comes because we know our own contribution. And so, you know, simply being aware, simply knowing what our experience is, yes, I'm angry, yes, I'm reactive, is not quite enough. We need a shift of perspective that helps us to see more deeply, more clearly. My teacher, Saira Utejaniya, says, awareness alone is not enough. And by this he means that we, uh, we need to have a particular perspective, a particular way of observing experience for it to lead to freedom, for it to lead to wisdom. And so the Buddha recommended that we cultivate right mindfulness, wise mindfulness. And the key definition of wise mindfulness is the four establishments of mindfulness. The uh, key sutta the Buddha taught around the practice of mindfulness. It includes four areas of establishing, exploring, our experience to establish this quality of wise mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of mind states, and of dhammas. Experience, relationship, that one's a complex one to describe in a few words, so I won't try at this moment, and I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go through these weeks. In that sutta, the Buddha actually lays out a definition of mindfulness. And he uses, he repeats this definition for each of the foundations. And so here it is from the foundation of the body. How does one practice right mindfulness? One abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. 
And so that's a package of qualities, of kind of things that come together to make right mindfulness. And so I'd like to unpack this a little bit and explore with you some of these words and my own uh, exploration of how these qualities support right mindfulness. So the first part, one abides contemplating the body as a body. The two words, the first two words, one abides contemplating. The word abides, I like, it has a, it has a very lovely settled back quality to it. As you, as you sit here, just think about what it means to abide in the body. Abide knowing the body as a body. How does that land? How does it resonate? The, the quality for me that it connects with, or set of qualities it connects with, is resting. Easeful. Connected. Receptive. The quality of meeting or being with experience. I was, had a workshop with a few people and uh, I was exploring this word with them in a, in a very interactive way and I said, so what does this quality make you think of? And one person raised their hand and said, the dude abides, which is, <laughs> which is from, apparently from a movie, The Big Lebowski. <laughs> but it kind of captures that sense, you know, the, the dude abides. <laughs> We can be the dude <laughs> abiding in our experience. It, it does kind of generate that quality of restfulness. <coughs> and so the Buddha brings in this quality from the beginning. It's the first word that he brings in for wise mindfulness, abiding. Contemplating has a meaning of observing, in, in um, to look at repeatedly or to closely connect with experience. The commentaries apparently um, connect this with contemplating or observing experience from a particular perspective, the perspective of impermanent, unreliable, and not self. And so this aspect of the definition also brings in some sense of what direction we're headed in terms of what we're looking at. Whatever we're exploring, whatever we're recognizing in experience, it will be impermanent. And so we can recognize that aspect of experience as an important aspect to highlight in what we understand and what we know. So these two words together, abides contemplating, to me brings a sense of relaxed, open, receptive, close meeting of experience. And so it, it, it brings together, as, and I'll talk about this a little more in a little while, the kind of both a relaxation and an interest 
know, contemplating carries that quality of looking, being with, meeting, closely knowing experience. And so this is an important balance for us. And what is it that we abide contemplating? We abide contemplating the body as a body or for the other foundations, feelings as feelings, mind states as mind states or dhammas, experience as experience. This also, I think, brings in another aspect of wisdom into the definition. What makes mindfulness wise mindfulness is not only what we look at, but how we look at it. There's not, there's not only the what, but the how we are observing. And observing the body as a body. What does that mean? I like that particular framing of the translation, observing a body as a body. Sometimes it's translated observing the body in and of itself. The body as a body to me evokes the sense of knowing the body as simply a body. We connect with our experience of body very much personally. We connect to it as I, me, my body. And this is pointing to a more simple recognition just as the instruction from this morning there is a body there is a body it's a framing a different kind of framing our meeting of experience than our usual way to meet experience the commentaries and I used that word a minute ago and didn't really explain what commentaries are there's a whole collection of texts that are um, words that were attributed primarily to the Buddha. There's a stack of those books. And then there's a whole other set of books that are people who have read those books and thought about them and made a lot of notes about them. And uh, a particular set of those books written in early uh, after, you know, the, the early in the common era, in the, you know, from the time of the death of the Buddha up until about 500 in the common era. Um, there's a collection of people who looked at the text and made comments on them. And this is the collection of works that are called the commentaries. And so the commentaries in looking at this phrase, they also looked at this and said, what the heck does this mean? (laughs) And they explored and thought about it and looked at various places in the sutta where it might help to help them understand it. And they came to the following understanding that the repetition of body as a body indicates that there's a need to precisely determine the object of contemplation and isolate it from objects with which it might be confused. This is uh, from a a 
paraphrased from a translation from one of the commentaries. So isolating the experience of the body, separating it from other experience that we might conflate or confuse with the experience of the body. I'll give you an example of how this might happen. So right now, put your attention into your hand. Just let your attention rest in your hand. And feel into the experience. Be with the experience of the hand. It can help to close your eyes with this. and Just notice sensations. You might notice pulsing or tingling or vibration. Stiffness, coolness or warmth. And now, open your eyes and look at your hand and think about it as a hand and what hands do. They reach, they grab. And what happens to the experience of hand? What happens to the experience? For me, at least, when I do that, there's a distance from the immediacy of the actual experience that I was with just a moment ago. Some of you may have noticed something like that. And this is often how we relate to our bodies, through the ideas about them. What particular, like in, with the hand, what our hands do, we look at our hand, we, we think about it, we have an idea of hand and we relate to hand through that idea rather than through the direct experience. And this is a way that the experience of body is conflated or confused with an idea about body or a concept about body. So this is a beginning to tease apart. We can start to uh, drop below the level of concept into direct experience. Not to say that we get rid of concept. Concept's actually an incredibly useful way to navigate the world. And if I had to come in here every time and remember, right, these are people out there and those are mats and this is a floor and I walk on the floor and those are walls and I don't walk through walls. And you know, if I had to think about that every time I walked into a room, it would take a lot of processing power. You know, as it is, I walk in and I meet the world a lot through concepts. And yet there's a big doorway there when we are relating to the world through concept for confusion to enter. Because we're not meeting direct experience, we're meeting our idea about what's happening. And that's where our reactivity can very often enter into the equation. And so meeting the body as a body helps us to connect with the actual experience of of the body and begin to tease apart the actual experience of body from other experiences, feelings, thoughts, ideas. It's so easy for us to conflate 
or mix together various experiences and confuse them with each other. And the practice of mindfulness helps us to tease them apart. I think that this aspect of seeing the body as a body also brings in a sense of a non-interfering mindfulness. One knows this experience as an experience. This is a body. There is a body. I don't know if some of you were playing with that today, but it does have that power of kind of cutting through some of those ideas about the body. It's just this is a body. There is a body. So it helps to bring in that non-interfering awareness. The next word in this definition is ardent, sometimes translated as diligent. So one abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, with ardency. The word ardency uh, in English brings in a sense of wholeheartedness. I like that aspect of that word, wholeheartedness, because it brings our heart into the equation of mindfulness and not just our minds. Ardency has a quality of persistence, of effort, and yet with this wholeheartedness, it's, it's not just about dragging our minds around, it's kind of bringing our whole being to this exploration of meeting experience. So I think it brings a heartfelt interest and curiosity and connection to this practice of mindfulness. And so this is a place where balanced and sustained effort is included in the equation. And this is some some of what Joseph talked about this morning, this this balance between uh, relaxation and alertness. And I think there's several places where this seems to come into this definition. You know, with with uh, ardency, we are including this quality of wholeheartedness and yet remembering it's balanced by this abiding. So we dwell hardently. We abide with our whole heart. Abiding with our whole heart. This is, this is not the more or less mindful that Joseph talks about. And so there is a, an art. I really think of this aspect of meditation, how we bring our effort as the art of meditation It's something we each have to explore. And it, it's never just one thing either. It's not like you get it and then forevermore have it. Because it is an art. It's completely responsive to the state of your heart and mind, the state of what's happening in the world. It's, this, it's a dance of how we bring our effort 
and meet experience. At times there's more of a sense of real commitment and meeting. And at other times it's more relaxed and settled back and just receiving. I find in my own practice that this dance is really helped by a light touch of effort in a moment. And that the effort in mindfulness practice isn't about gripping or holding or trying or pushing. I think we sometimes when we sit down or enter into a period of meditation, at least I know I, I when I was early in my practice, I'd sit down for a 45-minute sitting and it'd be like, okay, mindful for 45 minutes. And it'd be like I'd pick up the whole 45 minutes in the first second and try to generate the energy to be present for the whole 45 minutes in that first second of the, me- of the meditation. And the, the mindfulness doesn't work that way. The practice, the effort doesn't work that way. It's more of a a light touch in this moment, which it, it can be a light touch in this moment. Right now, Joseph pointed to this too this morning. Right now, feel the sensation of your hand. Feel the sensation of your hips touching the chair or cushion or bench. Feel the sensation of your lips touching each other. How much effort does it take? How hard is it? As I name each experience, very often the, the, the mind is right there. It's not like it takes a dragging of the mind to say, ooh, look at that. It's, it's not got that quality. It's much, it's much lighter of a touch. And so the, uh, the effort in mindfulness practice isn't so much about gripping or holding on, but it's that light touch again and again and again, and again, and again. And so that's where the effort is, is to keep the light touch going. It's the persistence that really is the effort, in pr- a gentle persistence of light touch of effort. There's a game that um, people from all over the world, from apparently as long back as we have records of people doing things, kids have played with hoops, round hoops, and rolled them along with a stick or something like that. And so I think you all know what I'm talking about. You put a a hoop on its end and then you, you tap on the hoop to keep it rolling. And the game is to see, you know, how long can you keep it rolling? And if you were going to play this game, you wouldn't take the hoop and give the stick a big, give the hoop a big whack with the stick and let it like, you know, you would lose the hoop. And there's very little control you have with that big whack. Instead, you give it a gentle tap, just enough so that you can keep up with it as you, as you walk beside or run beside the hoop and you can, you can tune which direction it's going If it's falling a little bit one way, you give it another gentle tap. And with these gentle tap, 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 a momentum gets going with the hoop. So it's the the gentle persistence. Our, Our mindfulness is very like that. And then as that 
momentum develops with the hoop, for instance, you might be able to run alongside or, or be right next to the hoop and not give it a tap for a little while and just watch it roll because it's got some momentum. And then give it another little tap or two as it begins to wobble. Again, as we practice with our mindfulness, we start with a gentle persistence. Moment after moment, light touch, light touch, light touch, light touch. And with that light touch, a momentum of mindfulness develops. And then we can kind of back off a little bit with the conscious doing of that effort and allow the momentum of mindfulness to simply receive experience, to know what's happening. And so this exploration around effort, this light touch of effort and this gentle persistence is going to be a lot of the practice. We will fall off on one side, we'll make, we'll, we'll get a little bit uh, tight around the effort, we'll, we'll be working a little too hard and we'll recognize that. And then we'll back off a little bit and then we'll go off on the other side and get a little bit dazed and wandering off in spaced out land and then we'll realize that and we add a little bit more intentionality. There's a, uh, I understand that with like airplanes, when airplanes are flying somewhere, you know, there's a radar, there's a signal that they're tracking. And they're apparently almost never right on that signal. They're always falling a little off to one side and then correcting back and a little off to the other side and then correcting back. Our practice is kind of like that too around effort. We don't just get it right. It's a continual dance of meeting the conditions and understanding an appropriate level of gentle persistence. I find playfulness to be a really helpful quality around the practice as a whole. To not feel like it has to be done right. Be willing to experiment. Be willing to play. Play with how you're using effort. Be willing to, sometimes I've sat, I've sat in the hall when it's like I've been fairly present and I thought, yeah, it feels pretty present and let me see, am I, am I making more effort than I need to? So let's see, can I let go of some effort? And I, I noticed there could be some letting go and relaxing. It's like, oh wow, I wonder how much effort I can let go of. And I, I could let go of an awful lot that I didn't even know was happening. And at some point the mind started to wander. It's like, okay, maybe that's a little too far. Let's, you know, come back, bring a little more intentionality. So be willing to play. The next piece of the phrase, clearly comprehending, fully aware. There's a lot of different aspects to this different ways this is described or uh, defined in the Buddha's teachings. The one that we're maybe most familiar with is the one, the area in the Satipatthana Sutta, and I think we'll probably talk about this. This is an area um, called the area of full, full awareness or clear comprehension, where it talks about meeting experience, all experience, 
It talks about being mindful while reaching and bending your arms, while going to and fro, while walking, while standing, while speaking, while remaining silent, while urinating, while defecating. So all day long. And that's a um, uh, one aspect of this quality of clear comprehension, the aspect of all the time. Mindfulness is all the time. So that gentle persistence, we just keep with that. One of my teachers, Saira Utejaniya, talks about it's like the practice is like running a marathon. And so you need to, to pace yourself. You know, it's, it, that light touch of effort, moment after moment, is doable all day long. A squeezing down, a forcing into, the mind gets exhausted. And so, just recognizing that. And so continuity, a big aspect of wise mindfulness. Another aspect of this word about clear comprehension, this word, what what else it brings into the definition of wise mindfulness is um, a clear comprehension of basically impermanence. There's a definition of clear comprehension in one place in the suttas that says, and how does one abide with clear comprehension? One understands feelings, thoughts, and perceptions as they arise, remain present, and pass away. So a clear connection of clear comprehension with the understanding of impermanence. Now that particular definition doesn't mention the body. It talks about being mindful of feelings, thoughts, and perceptions as they arise, they persist, and pass away. And yet, in that, te- in that text where it's talking about it, it also brings in mindfulness of the body. And so what does it mean to have these two together? I mean, there's no clear definition here in the texts about it, but as I practice with it, the way I would explore, explore this, or I explore this, is that this brings in a broader uh, frame for our mindfulness practice. When we're observing the body, it kind of it allows us to have a broader context for our experience. Like, as we're observing the body, we may be observing some experience, um, a pain, for instance. That pain will come with feelings, with thoughts and perceptions. This is, again, kind of the teasing apart of body, bodily experience from mental experience. And so there's a pain in the knee and there's an unpleasant experience, and there are thoughts about the, 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 the pain in the knee, and there um, are probably uh, perceptions about it, and what it means, and what we need to do about it. And so while we are experiencing the body, I think part of this is ex- ex- uh, exploring, and what is our relationship to that experience? clearly recognizing not only the experience of the body, but related mental experience that comes along with that. And to know that too 
as impermanent. To recognize unpleasant experience is unpleasant experience, arising, persisting, passing away. To recognize thoughts about that pain as thoughts arising in the mind. And so this is another aspect of clear comprehension. I really think of the clear comprehension as being a real uh, exploration of how we bring wisdom to our practice of mindfulness. It makes our mindfulness wise mindfulness, this aspect. The commentaries bring in um, another angle that they say that when we are clearly comprehending our experience, we really understand the purpose for which we're doing something. And so we, we understand the purpose for our mindfulness while we are mindful. The main purpose that the Buddha put out for wise mindfulness, to understand suffering. And so this is part of our exploration, understanding dukkha, understanding suffering. This again brings in wisdom. There's a factor, a factor a quality, I'm not sure what we'd call it, uh, called wise attention that's said to be the support for wise mindfulness, wise attention. And wise attention defined in the texts is, it's defined with some statements. It says, one understands this is suffering. One understands this is the cause of suffering. One understands this is the end of suffering. And one understands this is the way leading to the end of suffering. And when I first heard that or reflected on that, I thought, I didn't quite understand what it was. I thought he was just, I thought it was just stating the Four Noble Truths, which is what those four things are related to. But then I read it a little more closely and um, it's directing us, what I see is that that Wise attention is directing us to a particular perspective on understanding our experience. Whatever we are experiencing in the present moment can be understood as either suffering, the origin of suffering, the end of suffering, or qualities or supports leading us to the end of suffering. It's a framework through which we can understand whatever is happening in our experience. I may give a talk in more detail on this later in the retreat. But again, it's pointing our mindfulness towards understanding our experience in terms of what suffering is, how it's caused, what's the contribution in our own hearts and minds towards the experience of suffering, and how might it come to an end? Why is mindfulness pointing the way 
to the ending of suffering. The next word is mindful. One abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. And since I've talked a bit about mindfulness earlier on, I'll just move to free from desires and discontent for the world. You might think that's a, that's a, it's kind of a funny thing, you know, it's like, well, I'm doing this practice in order to free myself from desires and discontents. If I have to start there, is there any hope? How do I start there? Well, fortunately, uh, you know, uh, there's some, some aspects of the, the teachings that say, well, you can set them aside some temporarily. And another even more hopeful side to this, um, Bhikkhu Analio points out that the word that's translated from the Pali there can be understood in the active tense. So it might mean setting aside greed and distress for the world freeing oneself from greed and distress for the world. So essentially happening simultaneously with the whole process. And in my experience, that's very much what happens with mindfulness. We might be able to at times set aside our frustrations, our confusions, and just consciously kind of put them to the side And yet much of what we meet on this path is our reactivity. And so this, to me, this brings in a kind of how we are meeting experience. Can we bring a non-judgmental, non-reactive mindfulness to reactivity? kind of a step back in a way. So there's that shift of perspective that we become familiar with as we practice. We're caught in something like anger and we recognize, oh, this is just anger. This is something that can be explored with mindfulness. And while the anger doesn't necessarily in that moment vanish, there is a way in which there is a possibility to hold that anger in a larger container where that larger container has some ease to it. So it's kind of stepping back from. So this brings a a sense of how are we relating to what's happening? What's our relationship to our experience? In freeing ourselves from desires and discontent, can we bring in that perspective that that's the direction we're headed? So if we can bring in that sense of, oh, okay, anger can be observed like anything else. We're headed in the direction of freeing ourselves from reactivity because we may no longer be quite so caught by that state. 
Saito Utejaniya gives this definition for wise attitude. A way of observing experience that allows us to feel at ease with whatever is happening. And I'll add, including difficulty, including reactivity. So this perspective of wise attitude of not, of as best we can to be non-reactive to what's happening. This is the container in which mindfulness has its magic. Carol used that phrase last night. Mindfulness is like magic. It has the, the power of when we turn with attention to reactive states of mind, unwholesome states of mind, and are mindful of them. With that non-reactive, wise attitude, it creates the conditions for those states to become less and less in our experience. And when we turn with attention to our wholesome states, to states of compassion, of love, of generosity, of mindfulness, of concentration, of ease, of peace, when we notice those with mindfulness, with this wise attention of knowing this is peace, this is generosity, it creates the conditions for those to appear more frequently. And so this wise attitude is where the magic is. And we will see ourselves without wise attitude. And then can we recognize, ah, can I be okay with that too? This, it creates, it's kind of a staged process. This purification of the mind, this becoming free of desires and discontents. We see certain ways that we're caught and we can step back from those. And hidden in that, there may be other ways that we're caught and we step back from those. So it's a staged, it it happens in stages. It's not one big poof and you're suddenly enlightened. I used to think that's what was going to (laughs) happen. I really thought that, you know, my first few retreats. I kept waiting for some big, like, I don't know what I thought, big lights and flashes or something, and then after that I'd forever be happy, something like that. It's much more slow, it's much more gradual, and it's much more real than that. It's very much right in our lives that we wake up. So, one abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, freeing oneself from desires and discontent for the world. This is right mindfulness. It brings together both what we are experiencing, in this case the body, the four foundations bring in the breadth of everything, of of all of experience, of all experience that 
arises can be known with wise mindfulness. Nothing is outside of the terrain of wise mindfulness, of what can be known with wise mindfulness. And so it brings in the body as a body, feelings as feelings, etc. And so what we pay attention to, and very much the wise mindfulness includes how we pay attention. With a balanced effort, a light touch, an ease to our effort. Abiding, resting, meeting, wholehearted, persistent, non-judgmental, non-reactive, ease with experience, to see and understand our minds and our hearts, to recognize the impermanent nature, which has the power, the seeing of the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature, which is the, the power that mindfulness gives to us to see clearly. Mindfulness has that power to help us see deeply into experience the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. And that seeing deeply, deeply releases holding in the mind, deeply frees us from the ways that we are caught and struggle Some of this may need to be taken on faith or trust. And yet, you're all here for six weeks or three months and you will all become to understand, you will all come to understand how this works for you. And that's where the freedom comes, is seeing it in your own minds. There's a statement in the Dhammapada, one of the set of poems of the Buddha, of the Buddha, something along the lines of, you have to practice for yourself. The Buddhas simply point the way. Wise mindfulness is the very heart of how we practice for ourselves. So let's sit for just a few moments together.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.